3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Today is Tuesday the 2nd of May. It is 7am and you're in the studio today with me, Carnegie, Fong and Ivka. How are you guys? Great, yeah. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. I actually, I rode my bike in this morning <laughs> and I thought of you, Fong, because <laughs> I got my gloves out and, and I put my gloves on and it was very necessary. It is cold It outside. is very cold. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I totally support your decision there. I do have to say, though, these some of the last few days have been really chilly, but actually quite beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> like very ideal autumn weather, I think. Definitely, sun's out. Yeah, it's been nice. Um, I impromptu last minute went to a gig last night for one of my favorite Australian artists, Peach PRC, um, and it was so good. And I just wanted to say that um, I've like followed her whole journey on TikTok from when she was just starting out and I've seen her like really like grow as an artist (laughs) um I know it sounds lame but I have I feel like I really have and she was so good and I was just like so pleased for her that she's like come this far and she did an Enrique Iglesias cover like (laughs) mid-show which made my life that's great um there's something so special about like closely following someone especially if they're like a local Mm, artist and then seeing them perform yeah and you know she's particularly like open about her background and how she's gotten to where she has and i don't know i just feel i just feel happy for was it worth the last minute (laughs) it was so worth it yes um especially because for an encore she did hey now from the lizzie mcguire movie which is obviously one of the greatest pop songs (laughs) to ever exist absolute (laughs) classic um i was kind of hoping she'd do like a hologram of herself (laughs) and then sing that would be incredible but it was so good and i was like do all the youth like know this song but they seem to yeah i was like unsure that they would um so yeah that was my night and i'm like still like i love that yeah (laughs) Um, anyway, let's talk about what's happening on the show this morning. Okay, we're going to start off by revisiting my conversation with Samati Verma, who is a managing lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre uh, for Women on the Line, which aired yesterday, and it was a special May Day, International Workers' Day broadcast. Samati and I spoke about migrant workers in this country, their rights, how they're being exploited and what protections are needed for them to be able to take action against their bosses without fear of being further exploited or deported. So that's coming up first. Amazing. Um, And then at around 8 o'clock, we will be speaking with Dr. Brandy Cochran, who is the branch president 
of the NTEU at Victoria University about the ongoing struggle there for um, bettering working conditions, um, the enterprise bargaining agreement that is currently being worked on by the union, and um, to the general corporatization of the higher education sector, which we're seeing across the board. And then around 8.15, we'll be talking to Moriel Spearham, a actor and writer. Moriel will be talking about her new work, her new play called Inside Out, which has been commissioned by Yurin Boy and is on at Malt House this weekend. Great. Sounds incredible. Um, we'll be right back with the news headlines after this. Things need topping up every now and then. More tea, auntie. Thanks, Bob. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID-19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand in a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather round. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. These are our headlines for this morning. Last week, we reported on the ongoing Supreme Court case fighting to legalise gay marriage in India. The Bar Council of India last week had requested that the Supreme Court leave the entire matter to Parliament. Since then, the Supreme Court Bar Association has ruled um, three days ago that this was an extremely inappropriate statement and that the case will remain a matter for the courts to decide on. The case is still ongoing and we will make sure to update listeners here on Tuesday Breakfast. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we spoke with Dr. Piper Rod from Deakin NTEU about their non-union ballot and how university management was trying to get away with offering staff a bad deal without any union endorsement. As of yesterday, which was May Day, uh, Deakin staff have had a huge union win with over 60% of staff voting against the disrespectful deal proposed by management. This means that Deakin management will have to come back to the table and offer staff a better deal. Um, hopefully with union endorsement. We will keep listeners updated on their fight for better working rights here as well. Several Australian universities have imposed a ban on accepting new students from some Indian states. Universities are saying the ban is a result of fraudulent visa applications and um, applications to and applies, specific, applies to specific Indian states, um, primarily Haryana and Punjab. Edith Cohen University in Perth has advised that they were implementing the ban to take necessary precautions to protect the genuine interest of students. Other unis implementing the ban include Victoria University, the University of Wollongong, Torrens University and education agents working for Southern Cross University. The president of the Association of Australian Education Representatives, Sonia Singh, um, has said that imposing geographical bans is discriminatory and, called, and is calling for a more considered approach to crack down on fraudulent visas. Last month, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese visited India on a trip, which his department said 
in part highlighted Australia and India's strong education links. Um, yeah, this is uh, yeah. It's a, we're going to talk a little bit more with Dr. Brandy Cochran about this later today, and we'll be keeping an eye on this story um, because it's it's interesting to see the links between uh, how the Department of Home Affairs operates their policies and the university's involvement um, in all of this. Yeah, and uh, Sam Marty does touch on this in our discussion as well. So uh, stay tuned. Great. We will be right back with a track after this. Boobap Jazz. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Complex hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the sex. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. In honor of my amazing experience at Peach's gig last night, we are going to play her first track from her first ever EP, Manic Dream Pixie. This is called Love You Loved You Before. Happily in love, doing bug stuff I think I met you in a store in 1944 I probably wrote you letters while you went off to the war And we could have been two birds No, wouldn't that be so absurd? Or maybe just lost lovers They keep getting rediscovered
That was PHPRC with Loved You Before. For this week's episode of Women on the Line, I spoke with Samati Verma, a managing lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre and a Law Institute of Victoria accredited specialist in immigration law. She has practiced exclusively in migration and refugee law for over a decade and has held various roles uh, in private practice and the community legal sector. Sam Marty is also currently an advisor to the United Workers Union, a board member of the Migrant Workers Centre and deputy chair of the National Visa Cancellation Working Group. Today we will play you two excerpts from this discussion. In this first part, Samati talks about the exploitation of migrant workers and the proposal put together by the Human Rights Law Centre and Migrant Justice Institute that looks into what is needed to allow for workers to take action against their employers without fear of deportation. You are also currently an advisor to the United Workers Union and a board member of the Migrant Workers Centre. Can you talk us through some of the main issues that migrant workers face in this country? Yeah, sure. So in the United Workers Union, uh, and I've worked for that union and its predecessor union, the National Union of Workers, for close to eight years now. My work there involves running a migration clinic for temporary visa holders and migrant workers, but it's focused very much on temporary and undocumented workers who work on Australia's farms. So the type of labour experiences, the type of experiences at work that those folks have are unfathomable, they're unspeakable. They range from basically indentured servitude to run-of-the-mill wage theft, but they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty harrowing and they're connected directly to people's either lack of legal status in the country or the fact that they do have status, but it's extremely provisional and it's not heading anywhere in particular. Um, and their only hope of jumping off that very precarious visa status is eventually by sponsorship through their employer. So basically through that experience, I've learned a few things. The first is that there are, you know, it's not just North America and Europe who have undocumented migrant populations. Australia's got a very large one. Um, the second thing is that because Australia doesn't share a land border with another country, it has to create undocumented workers here in Australia. It has to bring people in with visas and then oversee a process through which those visas end or are stripped away, but people remain in the community as a type of open secret and source of tractable labour. But also more broadly than that, just generally through my work and also through my involvement with the Migrant Workers Centre, um, I've worked a lot with other types of temporary workers. So international students very prominently and people who have been sponsored by their employers. And they have a whole other set of different problems, right? And those problems arise fundamentally from the way that over the past two decades, starting with the Howard government, but, you know, carried over by governments of all political persuasions that really employer sponsorship, your, your boss has been made absolutely central to your life in Australia as a migrant worker. And that change in policy direction is the genesis of all of the problems pretty much that, that workers have. Can you tell us more about these temporary visas? When we think temporary, I mean, for me, it sounds like a really short amount of time, but how long do people end up staying in these visas? And what's the process of moving on to a permanent visa? And is that a very likely outcome for a lot of people? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. So temporary visas are visas of, you know, sort of finite duration. Temporary doesn't mean, you know, strictly 12 months and you'll renew it every 12 months and so forth. You can have a temporary visa of also indefinite duration, but it's connected to an, an event, say, for instance, uh, a bridging visa that's of a temporary nature. It's connected to a specific event in the future. Temporary visas can range, you know, from anything to... a uh, 
a month or a few months or a few weeks, even in the case of, say, a visitor visa, to a few years in the case of a student visa, to, you know, several years, five years um, in the case of an employer-sponsored visa. They can go for a really, really long time. And what our immigration system tolerates, in fact, increasingly what it's become, is a system that basically is predicated on temporary visa status, really without any connection to permanent residency at all. So you can come into Australia on a temporary visa, transition to another temporary visa, go on to a third student visa, get onto an employer-sponsored visa, and that employer-sponsored visa can be of such a nature that it specifically precludes you from um, transitioning to permanent residency. That is a totally tolerated set of affairs in Australia. You can have people, the system totally tolerates people being in Australia for 10 years and having absolutely no pathway to transition to permanent residency. That is obviously an utterly enormous problem and sets the scene for people being exploited at work, people having awful experiences in terms of being able to unable to access medical care, send their kids to school. Um, the social consequences are obviously huge. And furthermore, the, the effects that that would have on your mental health, just not knowing from one day to the next how long you're going to be here, even after 10 years, still being told that you you aren't welcome or there's no uh, certainty as to whether or not you'll get residency or, or continue to live in Australia would be quite frightening and also very damaging. Totally. It's, un it's like unspeakable, right? Like I've just finished on the phone speaking with someone who has experienced exactly this. So has been in Australia since 2014 on a series of temporary visas, but like in a way that is you know, the, the typical pathway, so a student visa to a temporary graduate visa to a state-sponsored temporary visa to now a bridging visa waiting for permanent residency to come through. And the mental load of that is so fundamentally extraordinary, not least, of course, because, you know, all, of all the material conditions that you're made to encounter. You can only get certain jobs. You don't have Medicare, all of this sort of stuff that fundamentally dictates how your life plays out over those 10 years. But also more to the point that at every single juncture, you're made to beg. At, at the end of every single visa, you're made to supplicate, you're made to beg, you're made to throw yourself, you know, at the whims of, you know, the Department of Home Affairs. You know, that's not something that my parents had to go through. We were back in the old days. I was born in India. We were back in the old days where, you know, you came into the country, you were a permanent resident. That's the way that everyone hated guest worker societies and that's the way that things went. Um, and things were bad enough, you know. <laughs> Coming as a permanent resident doesn't solve all of your problems. Coming to a place like Australia, you know, that's fundamentally a, a settler colony um, is not going to be a great experience. But on top of all of this, to have 10 years of basically playing chicken with your own life is just unspeakable and it can't go on. Yeah, and if you think about the current climate that we're in right now with the cost of living crisis, with, you know, housing crisis as well, like I can only imagine how distressing that would be. Yeah, it, it it's unspeakable, right? And and what's really interesting about, you know, cost of living crises and housing crises and sort of stuff like this is that they're primarily experienced by, you know, people who people who do occupy precarious legal statuses or, you know, people who are marginalised and oppressed in various different ways, but those very same folks are, you know, made to shoulder disproportionately the blame. You know, so temporary migrants are, you know, now the, like, political conservatives and, you know, folks on the right are sort of saying that, you know, migration intake needs to be looked at and, you know, you need to think about 
how many temporary or permanent visa holders you let into the country because they're all just going to take our houses and, you know, start using our social services, utterly ignoring the fact that those folks are already here and they're, you know, they're mm. owed something. They're literally locked out from those services, but at a certain point they're owed something. So, yeah, it's it's a harrowing time to be a temporary migrant. I wanted to turn now to the proposal that was put together by the Migrant Justice Institute in collaboration with the Human Rights Legal Centre at the end of last year called Breaking the Silence, a proposal for whistleblower protections to enable migrant workers to address exploitation. Can you tell us in more detail how exactly migrant workers are being exploited in this country and whether or not there's any accountability among employers? Yeah, sure. So, Look, technically speaking, you know, workplace standards and conditions, the national employment standards, the provisions of the Fair Fair Work Act, obviously they don't discriminate, you know, against people based on visa status. That's obviously the case. Although the reality, on the other hand, is, you know, strikingly different. This is something that we all know. We all receive Uber deliveries. We all know that folks are getting paid below the minimum wage. We know that instinctively, you know, as well as what we see out there in the world. The Migrant Justice Institute based in New South Wales did um, a couple of massive surveys a few years ago of temporary, thousands of temporary visa holders um, and found that basically more than two thirds were being paid below the minimum casual hourly rate and yet less than 10% took any legal action to recover their stolen wages, even if they knew about the avenues that were available to recover their stolen wages. So why is this? Why is this happening? I think that we're beyond the point where the type of answers that we can give to problems like that are because migrants don't know English or because migrants don't know about their workplace rights. I mean, those type of answers are, you know, very easy to give and might make sense to certain types of people, but they just don't check out, right? People people know their rights, but they also equally know that there is no legally safe or available avenue to realise them. So, for instance, what what we see if we zoom out from the migration system is that it's the conditions of the migration system itself that create the context for exploitation and drive it. So they're not they're not bad apple employers. They're not you know migrants who don't know they don't know English and don't know how to read a contract. But it's the literal set, settings of the migration system, and it does that in two fundamental ways. The first is by imposing a series of really restrictive conditions on visas that mean relating to work that mean that if you engage in work in breach of those visa conditions, it's much more likely that you're going to end up getting your visa cancelled, getting detained and deported from the country, than it is that anyone's going to take action against your employer for the same breach, for allowing you to work in breach of your conditions, right? So that's problem number one. And problem number two is that fundamentally people's access to permanent residency is tied to their bosses, meaning that if they're mistreated by their boss in any way, they have no visa security to pursue that boss and remain in Australia because the result of leaving your employer is that your sponsorship ends, is that your visa ends, right? So there are these two fundamental drivers in built in the migration system of exploitation. The proposal tries to address both of them. So there are two um, protections that we propose. Our headlining proposal is that if if the government wants to target migrant worker exploitation, which it obsessively says it, it wants to, creating harsher penalties for employers that nobody is actually going to be able to rely upon or activate in any way is no good. That's window dressing. That's like paper tiger type stuff. Don't do that. What you need to do is take a worker-centered approach, look at the material conditions that workers are experiencing at work, examine why people are telling you, workers are telling you, look at them and protect them. 
protect workers who take action against their bosses. That is the fundamental thing that you need to do um, to ensure they have access to their rights. So the first type of protection is a hard guarantee against visa cancellation where a temporary visa holder has breached their conditions but they're taking action against their boss, potentially relating to those breach of conditions and why that breach came about. And the second is a, a short-term visa that allows people to remain in Australia to pursue action against their bosses and gives them visa security so they don't have to leave the country and, importantly, permission to work. Um, so you can't, you know, have a visa scheme that's like you can get away from your boss but we'll give you this visa that doesn't allow you to work. Why would you ever leave your boss? Why would you ever take action? It has to allow that freedom. And that visa has to allow you to transition onto another visa that is not dependent upon that very same boss that you're pursuing. So this is, it's not the silver bullet by you know, any stretch of the imagination. There are all sorts of ways in which, you know, wage theft and exploitation of migrant workers is fundamentally woven into the fabric of the way that the economy operates in Australia, but it's a start. It's somewhere to start. And it's a, a way a way that people in Australia, including, you know, within the union movement, um, the trade union movement, can start to have conversations about migrant workers accessing their rights in a way that isn't fundamentally disempowering about migrant workers, in a way that doesn't assume that migrant workers need to be educated. It permits people and protects people to take action in their own interests. And that is how I think fundamentally change is achieved, you know, by people acting on their own interests, you know, collectively and and individually. There are a few things that you said just now that that really stood out to me. I think the first is what you were saying about, you know, the current reasons that are given for, for this sort of not just exploitation, but the lack of action taken by by workers, you know, blaming individual employers or individual bosses, saying that, you know, migrant workers don't understand English very well or, or don't aren't educated enough to understand the system. And yeah, like you were saying, it shifts the blame onto individuals and and away from the system. It makes it seem as though, well, that one boss, yeah, maybe they're dodgy, but the rest are fine. But it's not about yeah. that. It's about the system that's created this in this toxic environment for exploitation to to grow. Yeah, that that's really fundamentally correct. I mean, it, it's just I don't mean to you know a- answer the question in a kind of grandiose way, but you know I've I've been doing some reading recently about you know like early federation debates and debates that surrounded you know the white Australia policy and even earlier in the 1800s, attempts to bring indentured labourers to Australia from India and so forth, people who were sort of rendered landless by the British colonial policies and stuff like that. The opposition to migrant workers, like the discourses have remained like pretty much the same for like a, a couple of hundred years. They're all sort of about this idea of migrant workers being this amorphous mass of people who were like fundamentally like overborne by their circumstances and like totally given to working in situations of indenture, like they're their constitutions are like that. They're like just driven to undermine their own wages and conditions. They're like obsessed with not getting the right amount of pay for for their hourly work or or whatever. But this idea that people are sort of, migrant workers are independently driven to working in conditions that undermine other people's wages and conditions is a way of thinking that I think has historical precedence in Australia and I think has continued over the course of centuries and it needs to be systematically uh, attacked, of course, People want to be paid appropriately. People want to be paid what their peers are paid for the same work. If you simply removed the literal systemic and institutional barriers that prevented them from getting those rates of pay in those conditions, people would access them. So it's a the proposal is a sort of proof of attempted proof of concept. It's like 
please stop complaining about migrant workers um, undermining wages and conditions of other workers by allowing them to access the same wages and conditions. And you will then see that everyone wants the same wages and conditions and you can improve wages for all. And I think that's really important to keep in mind, you know, any reform, uh, any proposal needs to be, like you said, centred around the worker and the worker's experience. It's interesting you noted that it, it can't just be about heavier punishment for for employers or for bosses. There is a possibility that people are then sneakier about it and will find ways to work around those fines or whatever anyway. So, And at the end of the day, that doesn't really do anything for the worker or their experience totally. in, that, in that situation. So, Totally. Em- employer sponsorship arrangements are like, in a perverse way, tying your fate and your interests to the interests of your employer. So there is a visa system that means that if your employer is subject to a sanction or if your employer's approval as a sponsor is, you know, somehow barred or removed or interfered with in some way, the result is that your visa gets cancelled. So your interest is in protecting your employer because you're handcuffed to the guy. And then we all wonder why it is that, you know, people's wages get stolen and stuff like that. And then we all think about doing know your rights, you know, sessions for for people. People know their people know their rights. They know their rights so intimately that they know that they would interfere with their rights if they took action. That was Samati Verma speaking to me for Women on the Line yesterday. If you would like to read the report mentioned just now, make sure to check out our website after today's show. That's www.3cr.org.au forward slash Tuesday dash breakfast. We're going to play you part two of the discussion next, but first up a song. This song is Lydia Wears Across by Julia Jacqueline.
was Lydia Wears a Cross by Julia Jacqueline, who I was very lucky to see on Sunday at a surprise gig at the Pinnacle. She was playing with her friend, music partner, Jacob Diamond, who's been doing a residency, and they'd been using a pseudonym up until, I guess, she got on stage, but somehow the secret had gotten out because there was quite a full crowd, but it was very special. We return now to the discussion I had with Samati Verma from Human Rights Law Centre. This interview first appeared on yesterday's episode of Women on the Line. Before the song, we talked about the structures of the migration system in this country that allows for worker exploitation to grow and thrive and what is needed to ensure workers are protected from having their visa cancelled if they decide to take action against their employers. In this next segment, Samati updates us on changes coming in July regarding working restrictions for international students and what this means for workers' rights. So during the COVID pandemic, uh, in order to help meet workforce shortages, the government relaxed the allowable work hours cap for international students. However, the government has just announced that the cap will be reinstated on the 1st of July of this year meaning that it will raise the previous level of 40 hours per fortnight to the new level of 48 hours per fortnight. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so there's been a lot of discussion about international students returning to Australia because the Albanese government announced that as of the middle of this year, there would be a higher yearly intake of students than ever before in history. So a lot of people have had a lot to say about that, including universities, including, you know, the government, Itself, including employer groups and including student groups. A lot of the coverage um, about this issue so far has been universities complaining um, about students using the language of fraud. So there's been a lot of coverage uh, of the issue of international students returning to Australia by alleging that a lot of the people who are coming are engaging in a fraud, they're relying on fraudulent documents, they're coming here and then transferring to cheaper courses facilitated by education agents, and they're coming here fundamentally to work. So that's the reason why they're coming to Australia in the first place. And what's wrong with that discourse of obviously leaving aside the obvious racism of it, because fundamentally we're talking about increased numbers of people coming from India and China, right? So leaving aside the obvious racism of it on its face, there are a couple of things that are really important to remember. The first is that students were, all of those applicants, all of those people who are applying for student visa now, student visas now, are people who are in the pipeline and prevented from coming to Australia on, on student visas for years during COVID. So that's the first thing, the reason for the increased numbers of applications. The second thing is the things that universities are complaining about, these big universities who derive a huge amount of their revenue from international students, the thing that they're complaining about and they're labelling a fraud or giving the gloss of fraud is not in any way illegal. Coming to Australia, studying at a university, deciding you don't like it and then transferring to another university that's cheaper once you realise that Melbourne and Sydney have some of the highest cost of livings in the whole world and you'd prefer to pay less for your course. None of that is prevented by the Migration Regulations, the Migration Act, the ESOS Act that covers international students. This is all totally part of the course. And so universities going about banning applicants from certain countries is about them protecting their bottom line and about them trying to identify people who are most likely to stick with them and continue to pay them. This fiction that people, that international students are coming to Australia for work now, like never before, disappears the obvious fact that policymakers have relied upon this entire time for two decades, that students have always worked. They've always worked. The only thing that the 40-hour work restriction or what used to be the 20-hour work restriction earlier than that 
the only thing that these restrictions serve to do is compel students to work in circumstances that involve their exploitation, that involve their underpayment, that involve bosses, you know, encouraging them, paying them half so they're required to work over the work limit so that they can then dangle the threat of visa cancellation over their heads. So that is really what we're talking about here, this kind of illegalisation, you know, this rhetoric of criminality that, you know, is being applied to international students. It goes from cohort to cohort, but today it's international students, or this week, it is fundamentally about, you know, keeping students in their place and creating social support for the re-implementation of measures that are fundamentally going to suppress their wages and that are going to keep them in bad jobs and are going to keep them underpaid because students are are not going to be able to not work. It's impossible for anyone to not work in Australia. It's an expensive country and they're paying $50,000 a year to go to their university or $50,000 for their courses. It's it's a huge amount of money. And so are there any current protections for 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 international students? If they work in breach of the 40-hour work limit? Yeah. Um, no, there aren't. No, there, there aren't. There is really no protection, no hard protection against visa cancellation for someone in those circumstances, even where basically they've been coerced into breaching the conditions of their visa. It might go to a broad discretion, something like that, but there's no guarantee that your visa would not be cancelled. And again, very similar to to what you were describing earlier when it comes to temporary visa holders, that process then of, of taking action or speaking to someone from the Department of Home Affairs is would be quite distressing and costly. And I imagine a lot of students would be very reluctant to do so. Yeah, it's a, a absolutely. You know, the departments, when we've been agitating for these protections, the department's response has been your greatest protection is the wisdom of the visa, of, of the cancellation officer who's going to look at whether or not to cancel your visa and consider all of your circumstances and all of that. That is such intensely cold comfort, firstly because by the point that you get to visa cancellation, you'll put your entire life on hold to get a lawyer, compile all of your evidence, put together a statement and so forth, but also because a person exercising a discretion is unconstrained. They don't have to exercise it one way or another. Even if they do it in a way that's defective, you can't reopen or revisit the decision. Your only option then is to seek review of it in the tribunal. And that means being on a bridging visa, the most precarious form of visa for years. That's not the answer. You know, begging before decision makers is never going to be the answer. A hard, unequivocal protection is the answer. And not only for the actual literal protection that it provides, but also for the clear capacity for communication. So then it will be possible to clearly communicate to migrant workers and clearly communicate to their bosses that, listen, if it so happens that you're underpaid and in the course of that you've breached a work-related limit, that will not lead to the cancellation of your visa. And on the other hand, bosses, that will not protect you against this person taking action against you. That needs to be clearly communicable. And saying that there might be a benevolent officer somewhere hidden within the Department of Home Affairs is not that clarity of communication that you need. You just heard from Samati Verma for Women on the Line. You can check out all episodes of Women on the Line from 3cr.org.au forward slash Women on the Line. Also, make sure you revisit the May Day special broadcast that took place here on 3CR yesterday. You can find the full lineup at 3cr.org.au forward slash May Day 2023. Next up, we're going to play a track by Nam-based artist Alex Lee. This is their latest single, They Wouldn't Let Me In. 
by Nam-based artist Alex Leahy. We're going to play you another track this morning. This song is Power by Joy Crooks. I don't need your permission I don't want that disease Looking through every finger That you pointed at me Don't you like it so sexy Wearing it like it's free Dropping half-priced opinions But Calling me coupon queen You've got bitches, you've got hoes We the people and we know All we want is to be accepted But you don't You've got ideas all the same I'm your scapegoat 
code, feed me blame In the back of your mind you know you're wasting time And you're crossing lines with your, crossing lines with your power Come and spend it on me Power, what it means to be free You're a man on a mission But you seem to forget You came here through a woman Show some fucking respect We're your bitches, we're your hoes We the people and we know is to be accepted but you don't you got ideas all the same I'm your scapegoat feed me blame in the back of your mind you know you're wasting time and you're crossing lines with your crossing lines with your power song was Power by UK-based artist Joy Crooks. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. 
Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio am on digital and online 3cr radical radio got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Next up, we're going to hear from Think Again about anti-racism training in the workplace. I'm Jennifer Burrell, your host today. Jacques isn't here, but we have a wonderful guest on the program today, Elsa Jewett Rosenberg. Elsa is a que- describes herself as a queer, multiracial, Jewish and Chinese woman of colour and co-founder of the anti-racism organisation Hue which provides training workshops and consultancy. So welcome to the program, Elsa. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. So firstly, Elsa, can you briefly tell us what Hugh is and what it does? Yeah, so Hugh, we're an entirely PAC or people of colour-led organisation. We develop and deliver anti-racism and social justice training programs alongside consultation to organisations, community groups and individuals too. Mm, 
thank you for that overview and we'll no doubt hear more get to understand that more throughout the program today so uh, it would be great to hear about why you co-founded Hugh in the first place can you tell us a bit about your story leading up to the co-founding of Hugh starting with your time as I understand a social work student and your journey in the community service sector yeah absolutely I mean so in terms of my story, I think it starts probably with my family. I think uh, I come from a really social justice oriented family who really shaped my values and beliefs. And uh, that sort of is what steered me initially into studying social work, thinking that maybe that was where I would want to actualize some of my values. Um, I quickly learned that that was not at all where I want to actualize mm. my values. Um, I think I felt pretty quickly, especially after my initial placement was that uh, you know as a social worker I realized that I would be the the arbiter of, of harm and uh, power over communities in a way that I you know really wasn't comfortable with and that uh, this the scope for systemic change in social work at least in the spaces that I could foresee being a part of wasn't really as possible as I would have hoped and that it was more working in a system that was uh, really really harmful uh, and even, you know, by the time I finished the course as well, I think I had done so much of my own personal growth of discovering who I am and who my communities are and was involved in so much mutual aid within my own communities and leadership within my own communities that I started to really see the shortcomings in the social work kind of curriculum in general. I think that social work really, even though it talks a lot about bottom-up approaches, doesn't really equip community members or marginalised groups to work within their communities. You know, mm -hmm. there's not much conversations about finding leadership within your communities or how to work with other people, how to resolve conflict within your communities, how to navigate, you know, re-traumatisation when you're working within your communities. None of those things are really discussed and there is an inherent assumption in there, I think, that, you know, as a, as a social worker, you are white or you are wealthy or you are privileged and that you are in a kind of saviour positionality with the communities that you work with rather than being part of those communities yourself. So pretty quickly I steered away from that, ended up working in the kind of for change sector, um, you know, which is kind of mostly not-for-profits or social enterprises. And uh, I think I went in with the idea, which I'm sure a lot of people of colour go in with, or a lot of anyone from marginalised groups, assuming that the kind of progressive, in inverted commas, sector is going to be one that aligns with our values, one that is, you know, anti-racist or one that is anti-capitalist or all these things. And then we often find that these organisations actually just replicate all all the same harmful systems and socializations that we've experienced basically everywhere else in in our lives and then we start the uphill sorry um, no. I just wanted you to um, maybe give a few examples like it'd be interesting to hear some examples I think you told me previously for example when you were a student you were working for Centrelink so, mm. um, but also <laughs> yeah. maybe give some examples of the work you've done after you graduated um, because I, I guess from um, my own knowledge there there is a movement there's for a long time there's been a movement within social work with radical social work trying to um, create alternative ways of doing things so of mm. course it's really disappointing you weren't experiencing it that 
in your own social work course. Yeah. So I think that's really worth um, highlighting. And mm. and I'm thinking also of the perennial struggle of social workers making a living within the system, universities being part of the system, mm. um, needing to operate like a business, but also that um, uh, imperative to um, to train, uh, an imperative that should be there to train social work students to, uh, I guess, mm. be more empowering. Well, it definitely was a conversation, uh, you know, when I was in my course. We talked about bottom-up approaches. We talked about lived experience. We talked about intersectional systems of oppression. Like, we did talk about all those things. But then, you know, simultaneously all the staff and faculty at the university were white, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so, yeah. and simultaneously, you know, there were no, um, there was just nothing that was geared towards, you know, queer people in the course or people of colour in the course. There was like just a, an, a really glaring omission, which I mean is what happens when mm. none of your faculty have lived experience of mm. being part of those communities as well Mm. and when people are positioned as just practitioners versus clients rather than you know seeing those leadership roles as being one of of, in the same as the people who are in those communities who are actually you know having lived experience of the struggles and challenges that Mm. they're facing Mm -hmm. Um, I mean I also I then also wrote my thesis which and I had really racist experiences in that where you know I wanted to do a kind of auto ethnographic approach to my thesis because I, um, uh, aside from being totally self-absorbed and passionate about drawing on lived experience when we do research as opposed to these kinds of um, really removed, um, you know, objective or kind of colonial approaches to research uh, and just the ways that lived experience knowledge was undermined mm. even, you know, by the coordinators and um, and also how much my the population I was speaking to and the research I was doing was, was misunderstood stood and mm. often um, you know reduced down to something that it wasn't and mm. um, you know being seen as too subjective or too biased because we're too close to the issue as if that doesn't actually make us the most qualified to speak on it mm. um, so yeah stuff like that yeah and then um, after graduating you worked in a couple of organizations where you were cri- trying to address some of these things yeah I mean I think what's really common with the organizations in the you know progressive sector is that even though though they have social purpose, they're often, again, they're founded uh, by many of the same people, often middle or upper middle class people, often white people, um, often those who, you know, don't necessarily have experience with the Uh, issue that they are working on you know I think it's very common the kind of hero's journey you see in these organizations of some people touristing into you know a social issue and then creating an organization out of it um, to you know solve that problem without actually you know working with the communities who are experiencing it or even beyond that turning to what initiatives already exist within those communities because the majority of the time communities know the issues that they are facing and they're already organizing to challenge it but they might not have the access to resources or to networks or to the 
you know, safety net to be able to create their own organization or to get money from big philanthropists to work on their project. And so then inherently the privileged lens is the one that all of the organization is structured around and created from and that informs the policies, it informs the processes, it informs who is hired, uh, it informs the program delivery. And then we end up with programs that don't necessarily actually meet the needs of communities. Mm. Uh, And then, you know, when people of colour or marginalised people enter these organisations, we end up doing this massive uphill battle of trying to re-educate and advocate and point out what the issues are. But then, of course, we are kind of painted as the issue, you know, that we are difficult or unappreciative or rude or aggressive or any number of things uh, that, you know, end up often, you, you know, not only being really traumatising to us in those organisations, but end up pushing us out of those organisations entirely. And that was Jennifer from Think Again speaking with Elsa Tuart Rosenberg about anti-racism training for the workplace. Next up, we have an interview with Dr. Brandy Cochran. Dr. Brandy Cochran is a lecturer and researcher in criminology at Victoria University, as well as the NTEU branch president. Brandy has been on the show before to discuss the far-right movement in Australia and is on the show this morning to talk about working conditions at VU, the fight for a better enterprise bargaining agreement, and the dangers of a corporatizing higher education sector. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Brandy. Good morning. So for listeners who aren't aware, um, a lot of universities uh, at the moment are currently... um, going through an enterprise bargaining agreement process. Could you give our listeners a quick overview on what that is? Yeah, no problem. So um, at this point, we have these enterprise bargaining agreements, right, um, that we have with the university, and many of them expired um, at the end of last year or earlier this year. And so many um, universities are at the table with management at the moment um, attempting to get better conditions um, for university workers. Um, across academic and professional staff. Um, We also um, have a big um, statewide action on Wednesday because four of the universities, I'm sorry, five of the universities are actually going to take protected action um, on those um, agreements for workers. So trying to say, well, the university won't meet us in the middle, um, won't give good conditions to workers, so we're going to take some action around that. Yeah, and... You know, we've seen that other NTU branches across the sector um, are fighting for things like the decasualization of staff and pay rises, especially after the pandemic and, you know, with the current rising cost of living. Um, We spoke to the Deakin University branch president just the other week, um, and they've just had a big win um, after they had a non-union ballot with their university. Can you tell us a bit of what it's been like for academic staff at Victoria University? Yeah, well, I think um, specifically for academic staff, um, there's, um, you know, I would say this is across the country, um, but specifically at Victoria University and um, as well is there's kind of this um, ever um, expanding and sort of collapsing element of um, service that's a part of our job. So we have our teaching part of our job. We have the part of our job where we're doing research. And then we have this um, sort of service component. And in that is um, a lot of different things, right? So taking care of units, um, you know, uh, you know, supervising casuals, uh, doing a lot of different um, 
different um, kind of uh, work that um, doesn't really get accounted for. So we have sort of this workload that we can't really um, ever... Um, it's not transparent to us, and the workload kind of just keeps getting bigger and bigger, but we actually aren't given more time to do the work, right? So we end up working outside of our working hours, which is um, you know, a serious issue. Yeah, and I imagine uh, as a researcher as well, that would impact your research hours, and you know, one would also imagine it would um, affect the quality of research coming out of the university. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the more kind of um, work that we have to do that takes us away from some of those research, um, and it also affects teaching, our teaching quality as well. But yeah, it definitely affects the research time that I have and that other academic staff have um, to be able to get these, you know, good good projects, especially ongoing projects um, going keep in publishing from them and sharing, you know, our research. We just don't have time to do it anymore unless we're willing to work outside of, you know, our regular work week. So we end up working 50, 60-hour weeks um, just to, um, you know, be able to include all the things that we're meant to get done. Yeah, that's, um, you know, extremely concerning across, across the board, um, particularly with I think at VU, I think VU is the only university at the moment that has the block model, which I think puts um, additional pressure on academic staff as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So while most universities that people know about have, you know, two um, semesters, right, that, um, you know, or three possibly, um, what we have at VU is the block model. Um, That means that basically every month um, or every four weeks, a new course starts. So we are expected to teach, um, you know, anywhere between 10 to 14 of these units every year. And so we'll, we'll be teaching intensive, which is a lot of face-to-face hours with students um, and, you know, has some benefits. But it also greatly increases turnaround for things like marking and other aspects of our workload. Yeah, um, a very concerning trend. Uh, And for professional staff as well, uh, I hear there's been a lot of reclassifications across the university with staff losing their jobs, um, with staff being made redundant, um, and then, you know, the position's not being filled, and so um, professional staff are having to do two or three people's jobs without the pay or benefits. Yeah, absolutely. So they just keep restructuring. You know, we're talking a lot about job security lately, and that's you know, critically important, um, especially when we're talking about professional staff, because what keeps happening is that people keep getting, you know, made redundant, things are getting restructured, and as you said, people are doing the job of three to four people being told that someone else will be hired to help them out, and then, you know, it, it keeps saying, oh, well, we don't have the money right now, or, you know, there'll be changes, like you said, to position descriptions, so, oh, here's what my job is supposed to be, oh, I'm doing all this other work, shouldn't I be being paid at a higher level, and there's, you know, not a lot of processes that we have that can allow people um, access to that. So the the pressure is, is quite heavy, and we're also one of the lowest paid university workers mm. um, across both professional and um, academic staff in the entire country. So um, we just keep seeing our workloads mount, but um, our pay is also, you know, um, quite popular quite bad, which doesn't help the situation. No, certainly not. And it's interesting you bring up that VU is one of the lowest paid workforces in the sector. Um, We were just talking this morning in our news headlines about the ban on Indian students coming Mm. from certain states. Um, VU is one of the universities implementing this ban. Do you 
think it's the university's place to implement such a ban, which, you know, to me just seems quite blatantly racist, especially when they've been using the fact that we haven't had any international students um, as sort of an argument to say, you know, the university doesn't have enough money to keep staff on. Um, yeah, I just, I'm not sure that the university is, it goes against its values, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's blatantly racist to me, you know, um, looking at this particular process that we're going to start, you know, putting bans on Indian students from some states to, you know, keep, to, you know, um, keep them from coming in because they're, you know, quote unquote, fake students or whatever. It seems very, um, very much like the, um, you know, the regime, the border regimes that we see where they talk about, oh, we're not going to um, accept visas from certain countries to come visit because we don't want them to claim refugee status. It's like, oh, now we're going to continue to extend this by saying these people are fake students and now they can't come here to uh, learn, right? So by choosing to ban visas, whether it's student visas or other types of visas from other countries, it's just part of that, um, you know, extremely racist border regime that Australia um, continues to proliferate. And the fact that now the universities are getting involved with this um, more than they have in the past. It's a serious problem. It is, and it's, it's yeah, it's very, very concerning. Um, uh, I also wanted to talk about a fine that was implemented for students, um, which was a $500 fine for, was it late library books? Yeah, so um, they are calling, the university is calling them, quote-unquote, invoices, <laughs> um, which are subject to debt collection. We won't call them fines, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so this is with um, patrons with four library books overdue by 28 days. So what would happen is if you've kept your library books too long and you've had them less than a month, let's say, um, you can be fined $500. So the thing is, though, they aren't, you know, these fines can then go on the student's record. Um, they can be invoiced without warning. Mm. And then they wouldn't be allowed to do things like graduate when they were done until they could pay that $500. And in the current, you know, um, cost of living crisis, it's ridiculous that, you know, that this $500, you know, which may seem like a lot to some and not much to others, is, is I mean, but for a student, it's psychological and financial impact of a $500 invoice without warning is, is, is extremely intense. Um, when we were looking into it, we found that almost 60 people had, you know, met that proposed criteria in the last week. So in a week alone, that's 60 students that this would happen to. And this invoice, you know, they wouldn't, it would appear on their permanent record, well, you know, not to use that kind of casually, but, you know, it was, it was an administrative blocking that prevents them from graduating, as I said before. So that's a serious, a serious issue. Um, I just... Yeah, and we also believe that forcing library staff to do that, it's an unsafe workplace for them, and it's terrible for students. We've gotten some news that currently the invoices are just on hold, and they're not um, giving them out, um, and that's after pressure from from us, um, sending them um, some motions and some um, you know written letters that says, hey, this isn't okay. Yeah. Hopefully, we can figure out a way to um, you know ban them altogether. These invoices. Um, or fines as they really are. Yeah, absolutely. And it's in both of these um, examples are kind of show that, you know, the increasing corporatization of the higher ed sector you know, it not only affects staff, but also students, which is literally against the point of the university. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when I joined VU even just three years ago, um, I've seen in the past three years that corporatization, you know, continue to grow and change VU um, from being focused on students and staff. I mean, you know, this has always been an issue, but I think it's intensified in the past three years with these constant sort of restructures. We now have gone from having individual colleges to having two, what I'm <laughs> colloquially calling mega colleges, mm-hmm. where we have now kind of one, you know, one dean for like, you know, five different, what used to be five different colleges. So more and more we're seeing this structure of, um, you know, uh, intensifying away from the individual and the individual being able to access, um, you know, their dean or having someone that they know that they can be instead of have this, this sort of management structure that's removed from workers, which I think is also a serious problem. Absolutely. And it feels like the focus has become more on marketing the university mm. in a certain way. Um, and, yeah, in the background, this is what's, what the reality is, um, which is, yeah, not the point of higher education in any way. Mm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what uh, the NTEU is demanding in the new EBA and you know, how is this going to help protect um, university staff from the things we've just kind of talked about um, continuing and getting worse? Yeah. Um, well, right now the focus, you know, kind of the, the main focuses that we're talking about, you know, across the state is continuing employment as the norms with enforceable targets. That's, again, moving people off of casual, sessional, and, you know, kind of contract work and hopefully, you know, trying to get them continuing employment because, as probably many listeners will know, the casualization um, issues within the university are, um, you know, just staggering and there needs to be um, a change. We can't keep people, you know, on this casual work for years and years and years, and that's currently what's happening within the university sector. It, it, it relies on people, you know, not being given continuing employment, and that's a serious issue. Um, fair workload, um, you know, as we were talking about before, and working hours, that makes sense. Um, and real pay increases, I think, is the last one, especially, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, this, um, you know, in this current, you know, uh, climate and the, you know, changes um, to, um, you know, the, the, the continuing cost of living yeah. um, and inflation and things like that, like we need a, we need a fair, um, we need a fair pay raise, you know, across, um, across university staff. Absolutely. Um, Brandy, we're running out of time this morning, mm-hmm. but this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'd love to have you back on the show, um, you know, as the fight for working rights to be better at VU and across the sector continues across the board. Um, but thank you so much for joining us this morning and talking us through this. Yeah, thanks so much, Kanegi. So that was Dr. Brandy Cochran, the NCEU branch president at Victoria University. Uh, we'll be right back with another interview after this. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short for my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the sex. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new.
accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies The stars open a short for my dark eyes Complex Hey, I'm Lady Lash You're listening to 3CR Community Radio The voice of dissent 3CR is so awesome Giving the platform for people's voices to be heard And people's gifts to be heard And always remember that you are amazing I'm dreaming of the seven moons Oh, I see what's new So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Digitube, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
Muriel Spearham is an actor, writer and singer. Muriel combines art forms to create bold, thought-provoking and unapologetic stories. Muriel's play Inside Out, a new work battling racism head-on, is on at the Malt House this weekend as part of Urine Boy Festival. Thanks so much for joining us, Muriel. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I mean, to be here having a yarn with you this morning, bright and early. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, thank you so much for joining us. Before 9am, we really appreciate it. Um, can we start by telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Yes, yeah, sure. I'm a proud Gamilaray Krumamura Wari woman from northwest New South Wales, just over the border of Queensland. Um, yeah, I moved here to Nam to study at VCA. I did my bachelor's there. Um, in dramatic arts or acting <laughs> and then I uh, went back last year and did my master's there uh, in writing and I've been working uh, in the industry for over 15 years now across the sector in um, theatre, film and TV, dance, music, MCN. You know what it's like being an artist. you got to be <laughs> able to do <laughs> a finger in each pie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so with this new play that you've written and having recently finished your Masters of Writing, um, I'm curious about what draws you to writing and telling stories. Yeah, so this Friday at the Malt House for Urimboy Festival, Urimboy um, commissioned me to uh, write and pro- uh, to produce and put on this play. Um, so I'm really excited to be one of their commissioned artists. Love Urimboy, love all the mob there and the team. Big shout out to you. And a thank you to all the amazing work that you're doing for the three over 300 artists that are a part of the festival. Um, I'm excited to be kicking off this Friday at the Malt House Theatre in the Tower. So we have shows 7.30 Friday night, 2pm uh, matinee on Saturday, a 7.30 show on Saturday night, and then we close on Sunday at 5pm. And there's a range of tickets for uh, everyone so that it's affordable for everyone and um, it's accessible to wheelchair access as well. Um, yeah, and it's a fun comedy. It's called Inside Out. It's a play that I've written. Um, I started writing that at um, for Cybeck Electric in 2021 at um, uh, Melbourne Theatre Company and then from there I've uh, been writing it uh yeah, and then I pitched it for Urimboy Festival, and um, now here we are. <laughs> so I'm just really excited to finally have it come off the page and on the floor and in front of this deadly audience. So, yeah. Yeah, I bet. It sounds like I bet a lot of work has gone into the whole process of putting this show together. Um. So, yeah, so this weekend, sorry, you're cutting out, so I can't actually hear what you're saying. No, I was just saying I uh, bet a lot of work has gone into it, um, putting the oh, show together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, yes, a lot of work um, behind the scenes uh, from myself and from the entire team, really. As you know, it's really a collaboration to, to get it to the finish line. You know, I have an amazing team with me that has come on board this project, um, yeah, you know, from uh, my director to the set design, lighting, um, animation, and the amazing cast of actors, of course. Um, 
Yeah, and then um, doing the music as well for it. So, oh, wow. yeah, we've got uh, Monica, Jasmine Caro, Carissa Lee and Simon Flynn and myself as the cast. And then we've got Alkisti, she's our director, and uh, Max is our set designer. We've got uh, Chris doing our lighting and Sebastian doing our animation. It's just really fun. It's really silly. Uh, you know, it's. I really wanted to write something, especially after COVID and everyone being mm. in lockdown. I wanted to write something with some humor. Yes, <laughs> but, yeah, I but think. But also that has those moments of like seriousness in it. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. I was curious about that as well because I'm like, I can see it's a comedy and it sounds like it'll be a really fun show to see. But there are some, you know, deeper themes in there as well. And so, can you talk a bit about those themes and how you can kind of use humor to really delve into those issues? Yeah, of course. I mean, I feel like, especially for black fellas, but just for people in general that have gone through hardship, that have had, you know, things come unexpected and you know have them fall back humor has been a way to always lighten the load for Mm. for more especially but i I think for um all human beings as a way to cope do you know what i mean and a way to overcome and so i think that humor is a great way to access um you know another perspective if that makes Mm. sense yeah totally Mm. um i don't want to give too much away i want (laughs) everyone to come along to the show there's four shows. Um, like I said, there's heaps of tickets that are available in a range of prices. Yeah. And we're also going to offer some cheaper tickets um, for this week as well for everyone. So, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I do so- love I do love that about your and boy. They've got such a scale of pricing so that you can uh, ensure that everyone can attend. Um, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today, Muriel. But thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, oh, no worries. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, hopefully I'll get to see you after the show on the other side. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Okay. See ya. That was actor and writer, writer Muriel Spiram. Muriel's new play, Inside Out, is on this weekend, 5th of May till 7th of May at Malt House as part of Year and Boy. You can head to the Year and Boy website to buy tickets that is y-i-r-r-a-m-b-o-i.com.au. And that brings us to the end of our show this morning. Um, for a quick rundown, we started with listening to Fung's interview from Women on the Line yesterday with Sanmati Varma about um, exploitation of migrant workers and changes coming up uh, in July to those working restrictions and what this means for workers' rights. We then heard a um, clip from... Uh, think again about um, an anti- anti-racism anti training for the workplace where Jennifer spoke with Elsa Tewitt-Rosenberg, who is the uh, multiracial um, co-founder of anti-racism organization Hugh. We then spoke with Dr. Brandy Cochran, who is the um, branch president of the VU NTEU branch, about uh, VU staff fighting for better workplace conditions and workers' rights. Um, and we just ended there with uh, Muriel Spiram about Inside Out, which is a part of Here and Boy. Um, we encourage everyone to check that out this weekend. Um, we will see, I mean, hear from everyone again next <laughs> Tuesday. Um, keep it locked to breakfast this week from 7 a.m. And coming up next, as always, is Accent of Women. 
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.